you open up the 1 Corinthians chapter 15, please? And you who are watching as well, I think there's a lot watching because these are difficult times, precarious times, but God, by God's grace, He is still on the throne. I was, um, I was thinking through who, uh, who should I direct this to? Normally when I do sermons, sometimes I put into my mind the person that needs to hear this message. What kind of person, but... As I was thinking through this, I wish I would have heard this the first time I came to church. So in a way, this is being directed at my 23-year-old self. I needed to hear this. I think somebody here needs to hear this. We all need to hear this, actually. But somebody right here is not too sure about this. Um, This is the most important message you could hear. If If I could preach only one sermon the rest of my life, it would be this. And so I pray I do a good job today to help explain why this is so important. Um, I made a statement last week even. If there's one passage of Scripture I'd like you to memorize, it'd be 1 Corinthians 13. But I've changed my mind after studying this. I'd like you to memorize this. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 11. You know when you're online and somebody either puts a picture up that you really like or they make a statement that says exactly how you're feeling, and in the comment section, you just write this. That's what I want to say about 1 Corinthians 15. This. And so I've titled the message this. So if you can stand, we're going to read it together. We're going to examine it. We're going to linger in it. We're going to soak in it. We're going to know it by the time we're done. Because this, chapter 15, is it begins like this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word, I preached to you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Let's pray. Father, my prayer is really simple. I pray for power. I pray that this message would uh, sink deep and tattoo people, that it would really hit them hard and they wouldn't forget it. I know you can do that, God, and in your Son's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So 1 Corinthians 15, that means there's really a chapter, two chapters left. Paul is almost finished. He's done arguing with the Corinthians. It's been a tough, tough letter. He's also done defending his apostleship, and I would say like this, he's done messing around. He's done messing around. 
So this passage, he's putting all of his cards on the table. And he says, this is where we either join together or we separate. I will not compromise on this. And like Jude says in verse 3, he says, this is what we contend for. This is what we fight for. And this is what we do not give up. We don't. And so what he's going to do is in the opening, 1 through one and 2, he's going to use a short series of statements that talk about how the gospel affects our past, present, future, and continuous forever. And why it's so important. And so I'm going to use it in this phrase. This is, number one, this is what Paul says is what I preach or what we preach in some versions say. This is what we preach. In other words, this is our message This is all we got. We don't preach health and prosperity. We don't preach politics. We don't preach psychology, sociology. We don't preach postmodern philosophy. We don't preach conservative ethical theories. Nor do we preach how to eliminate poverty. We don't preach how to promote human progress and human happiness. We don't preach finance. We don't preach portfolio management. We don't preach cinema and celebrity news. We don't even preach how to figure out the identity of the Antichrist who's going to rule the one world order. That's not our job. We preach this. Because this is what you, my brothers and sisters, he says, received. That word is so, so important. The word received means you didn't do this. You didn't produce this. It was produced in you. It was given to you. This is what woke you up. This is what made you come to your senses maybe for the first time ever. I'm hoping it happens today. This is what sparked a new hunger for God in your gut. You didn't do this. This message was all God. So you, all you could do is receive it. You could say it like this. This was the seed that was planted in the soil of a dead heart and brought flower to life. This is, Paul says, in which we stand. It's where we stand. As a community of believers, we unite under this banner. This makes us one. This is what we cannot, what we will not, what we shall not ever compromise on. We're going to disagree over everything almost except this. And if we stand on this, and I mean we unite on this, the gates of hell will never be able to stand against us. Because this is what saves what he says this is what saves you got to let that sink in this is what saves me from personal destruction this saves me from the fire of hell nobody ever says that anymore but it's still true it's still burning it's still hot this saves me from me and my evil desires that corrupt this is what sets me free 
And the last thing he says in the last verse 2 is if you hold fast to this word, that means if you stand on this word, it's certain, unless you believed in vain, and by that, either motively, your motives might be wrong, or more, the, the information that you have might not be wrong. This is the information where you can be certain. Where you can be certain. Far too many people wonder, what does a, what does a person really need to believe to be considered God's child? What do I need to know? This. A lot of people wonder, ah, how can I be sure I'm not going to lose it because of this? So we need to take our mind and savor this. Savor the flavor and the taste and the beauty of the gospel because this is all we got. So what he's going to do then in verses 3 through 5 is he's going to go in three statements. I'm going to call them three movements of the gospel. Some early Bible believers think that it, this was an early church catechism or a creed that they'd say together in public. And it's written in, in really memorable phrases. In the Greek, it's parallel, parallel sentence structure, but it's intended to make it memorable so you can remember it and so it can be clean. So this is designed to cut you like a knife, joint and marrow, soul and spirit. Discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So we're going to move in three movements. So the first one is this. Christ died for our sins. That's what it says here in verse 3. For I delivered you as first importance what I also received. This isn't Paul's message. He received it. And it is this. Christ died for our sins. And some of you at this point might be tempted to say, I know this. <laughs> I'm bored of this. All right. This is obvious. But is it? Is it? You have to let it cut you. You have to let it change you. There's so many people that say they really believe this, but they're, no diff they're not different. So do you really believe this? So we have to really, we got to contemplate it and apply it and make it ours. And the first thing it says is the word Christ. What a word. Christ, God's chosen king. Christ is our Lord, our master. Christ is the one who created everything that is both visible and invisible. Christ is the one that holds all things together. Christ is the leader of all the angels in heaven. Christ is the one that causes demons and Satan to tremble with fear. Christ is God's only son. His only Son. So Jesus Christ has voluntarily come to this broken, dirty planet to take your place, your place on the gibbet, your seat on the electric chair to face your firing squad. I mean, that's really what it means. He wanted to come to the cross, and in theological terms, his coming to the cross is called substitution. He took, he took your place. He took my place so he could die. Christ died. Jesus was a real man. He was flesh and blood. He was not a phantom. He was not a vision. He was not a ghost. He was a person who had a beating heart, who had lungs that breathed air and exhaled. 
He had hands that touched lepers. He, t- he touched a dead son of a widow in the town of Nain, and he jumped out of the casket. He, he would rub mud in between his thumb and forefinger, then wipe it on the eyes of the blind, and they'd see. Children loved this man. His mom loved him. And this is the man who died. My, my question is, what, what did he do? What, what wrong did he do to deserve to die? Is there anything he did? What, what wrong thoughts did he think that caused him to die? Or what did he fail in? Nothing. He did nothing wrong. And yet he died for our sins. And the, the key word, I think, is our because it signifies ownership. It signifies who's guilty. So you could say it like this, the debt that Jesus came to pay was owed by us. So you could say, we're to blame, I'm to blame, you're to blame. We're guilty. We're guilty. We're not allowed to use that word anymore, guilt, because, you know, psychologists don't want you to feel bad, but we're guilty. Did you know One sin, one sin ruins the world in the same way one iceberg sinks the Titanic, one sin sinks a soul. One sin makes all your goodness smell rotten, kind of like one skunk in your house causes everybody to run. One sin spoils heaven. One sin is enough to condemn me to an eternity of hell because one sin reveals that inside of me is a capital S sin. I'm really not sure people believe that anymore. I was talking to a man this week who, um, who wants to compare his good deeds with others to show how, quote, he said, how many admirable qualities he has, qualities that are far better than many Christians that come to church on Sunday, he said, end quote. And so with brazen confidence, he believes, he, he actually believes he will escape the wrath of God simply because he's a little bit better than other people. Because he's a little bit better Did you know we all secretly believe this? I think we all secretly compare ourselves with others and that wrath is really only meant for the extremely bad people and as if I'm not one of the bad people. But the question is, who do we measure ourselves against, honestly? Well, the measuring line is Jesus. How do you compare yourself to Jesus? In the Bible, think about it like this. In the Bible, every time a person came face to face with God's holiness, and I believe when they came face to face, I believe in the old, they came face to face with the pre-incarnate Christ. And then in the old, the New Testament revelation, John, the apostle, came face to face, I think, with the risen Christ. And every time somebody came face to face with the glory of God, here's what they would say. I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. 
Isaiah said, Woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips. John the Apostle said, I saw him and I fell at his feet as though dead. Somebody in the first service after I read this came up to compare like, He's given an illustration of what the glory of God said. And he said, we like to think we're standing on this ground and the people we compare ourselves to are in, a, are in this well or in this sea sword a little bit better. But Jesus is up in heaven. Or I've heard another illustration. Let's go to Grand Haven and jump off the pier to see if we can get to the other side of Lake Michigan. Maybe you can far, jump out a little farther than me, but Jesus can clear the whole lake with his glory. Can you? perfect holy one, the one we cannot look at in the face because of our sin, is the same one who died. Which leads us to the second movement of the gospel. And it goes like this. He was buried. That's what it says in here. He was buried. I've always wondered why this is included in the creedal statement. Why didn't it just say Jesus died for our sins and then rose again on the third day? Why he was buried? It seems almost, yeah, doesn't necessarily seem as significant, but it is vitally important for two very important reasons. Number one, it shows that the death Jesus died was real and he completed the earthly task to the very end. Or you can borrow from the language of Jeremiah 25:15. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath down to its very dregs. In other words, there wasn't one drop left for him to lap up of the wrath of God. He drank it all. So there's nothing left for him to complete. This is a word, there's a uh, theological word associated with the death of Christ, and it's called expiation. Expiation means the deal is done, our past due account is completely blotted out, and the record has been cleared. The record against us is wiped away. It's wiped away. And so you could say it like this, with burial goes the body, with the body goes the life, and with the life, goes all the baggage. All the baggage of regret, failure, dark secrets, moral weakness, and depravity is buried too with the body. I'll give you an illustration. I did a funeral about seven years ago. And I remember it very, very vividly because this funeral was performed for a very wicked person. Sometimes funerals are hard to do. Sometimes they're great. This one was one of the hardest I ever did. And the reason why it was hard is when I met with the family in a funeral home, I wanted to talk to them over the service so they could share a little bit. And here's what they told me. They said they had nothing too good to say and they were just relieved that this person's dead. Because they said when they were alive, they were always abusive, angry, and cruel. So when this person died, the children said, we finally have peace. That's what death means. It's over. The power that this person once held over others has been broken. So in the same way, if Christ died for you, you know it's been buried in the grave. All of those things that haunt you. All of those memories that you keep bringing up and saying, I'm no good. All of the, that, those temptations that would rule you. Jesus put dirt over them. They're dealt with. They're buried. It's done. 
And so the second thing burial means is not only is it complete, but burial sets the stage for the best movement of all, the third movement of the gospel, which is he rose again on the third day. The person who died is the same person who rose again. So that means, number one, death did not win. It means that death, and specifically Satan, didn't ruin God's plan. In fact, a lot of people call it the grand reversal. Satan didn't see what's coming. He thought in his mind, if I can bury Jesus, I win. But God said if he buries Jesus, he's going to rise again, and I'm winning. It's a great, it's a great wrestling move, in fact. Death was the pathway to new life, and that new life is a resurrected or resurrection. So the new body that Jesus was given was no longer, and is no longer, subject to the ravages of death. It's no longer weak, it no longer gets tired out, it no longer needs the angels to strengthen it. It became, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 42-43, listen to this, when Jesus was risen, he put on a body, a new one, imperishable, glorious, powerful, and no longer natural, but spiritual. So he died as a weak victim. He was raised as an invincible ruler. He, ra- he was raised as Superman. And so will we who believe. Think, I mean, think about that. That's our future. I just got... In between these two services, and this this has been happening a lot in COVID, I just got a text from my cousin. His wife was just had a brain aneurysm. She's probably going to die this morning. How weak is life? We're terrified of a virus. But we're going to be raised invincible. Charles Spurgeon said, we're going to almost have strength where he believes we'll be able to grab a tree by the trunk and rip it out by its roots. That's the body we're going to be given. But I think, I really think you and I don't believe that. We try to hang on to this life so much. He rose again on the third day. The resurrection is not something you can achieve through hard work or moral living. It's God's gracious work performed in you in through you, after you die. So we can only participate in the power of the resurrection after we first believe our old life is dead, that we really were crucified with Christ on the cross, called the vicarious death of Christ. And once we believe that, the Holy Spirit comes and makes His home in us. He lives in us. He makes us brand new. Why else did Jesus have to rise again? And here's the main reason. It's uh, to give tangible proof that God is completely satisfied with His Son. God is satisfied. He requires nothing else. So the resurrection is a declaration of God's satisfaction. The payment by the Son on the cross is credited to you and me. We have nothing to achieve. We have nothing to pay back. We have nothing to owe because God is right now, presently, and you have to believe this, He's presently satisfied with you. He's satisfied with you. Those of us who have received this message sit here right now in this auditorium or watching in our living room in the presence of a smiling God. (laughs) Jesus took our place. 
He completed the task and did everything to the Father's utter satisfaction. So we are now at peace with God. Take a deep breath. (sighs) Breathe out. Let it go. God is happy with you through Christ. So that, those are the three movements. So now what Paul is going to do is he is going to then, starting in verse 5, he's going to give what I'm going to call not proof of the resurrection, but the truth of why the resurrection is solid, why we can bank on it. Because Paul knows that doubt is a part of our natural nature. We just doubt. We do. We wouldn't have faith if we knew everything for certain. We doubt. We, we wonder, are we sure this is enough? we sure this is really the real message? Are we sure this is certain? So what Paul is going to do in this section is he's going to tell us the truth. Not necessarily offer proofs like an argument in court. He's going to give us truth. So he's going to lay down the facts as they are facts that we can stand on. Two strong facts. So this isn't true that Jesus rose from the dead because Paul proves it. There's evidence because it is true. It's a big difference. And so these are for those who wonder. Skepticism is part of my nature. And so I'm glad he continued on with this. And by the way, I I think this is important to know. You'll often hear people say this about faith. They'll say faith is a leap. It's a leap into the dark. No, it's not. God will give us something to stand on that's strong and sure. It's not a leap into some unknown dark cave and I I just hope that I believe. No, I have hope because I know what to believe in. And there's two things. And the first thing he says is this. Because of the Scriptures. In verses 2 and 3, or 3, he says Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Verse 4, and he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. The Scriptures promised this. And since God said it, it is. Everything, everything you see, so if you look around, you'll see like the blue paint on the wall, you'll see this carpet, you'll hear this wood. All of this material matter we think is the stuff. The material matter was made by the wood, I mean by the Word of God, so this wood was made by God's Word, so God's Word is stronger than this wood. It's the basis of everything you see. So Genesis 1-3, God says, Let there be light, and there was light. Proverbs 35 says, Every word of God proves true. And then Psalm 19-7 says, The testimony of the law, the testimony, what it testifies to, is sure. It's sure. So you could say it like this, His Word is stronger. His word is sharper than the diamond blade that cuts the granite stone. And in fact, his word made the diamond and made the granite. So when God says in his word it is so, you can bank on it, it is so. The density of the gospel finds its substance from the word. And so the Old Testament bore witness to his death and resurrection. In Psalm 22, Psalm 69, Psalm 118, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 53, And Psalm 16 says God will not let his son's body rot in the grave. You can bank on it. It came true. Second bit of foundational testimony is the witnesses that saw it. 
they saw Jesus risen from the dead. And so what he does is he lists in what I believe is chronological order how Jesus was seen after he's risen from the dead. Verse 5, he appeared to Cephas. That's Peter. Remember, he appeared to Peter in the garden, Luke 24, 34. Then it says to the 12. In Mark 16, 14, he went up to the upper room and they thought he was a ghost. And he said, didn't you guys believe I told you I'd rise from the dead? He rebuked them. And then you have, it says, then, and this is really interesting, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. That means at the time of this writing, most of these 500 that saw Jesus alive can testify they're still alive. Some did die. That's why it says some did fall asleep. 500 brothers. I call that a preponderance of evidence. So you have Paul Slaughter over there, let's say right now I took my knife, I ran over and I stabbed Paul Slaughter. So we go to court, there's less than 500 people in here, but I think I would be guilty. 500 people who saw Jesus rise from the dead, that's a preponderance of evidence. <laughs> that's, a found, that's not a blind leap of faith. That's a foundation stone you can stand on. And then it ends by saying, then James saw him. Who is James? James is his brother, his biological brother. James thought he was crazy in the Gospels, but he went and he saw his brother. I'll bet you James just looked just like him. It'd be interesting. Wow, you look a lot like Jesus. I hope people say that about me without seeing Jesus. And then he appeared to the apostles. This is really interesting. It's in Luke 24, 50. I was explaining this actually to the senior hires on Wednesday. And said, you know when the apostles saw Jesus is when he, and when he ascended into heaven. And some said, what do you mean he ascended into heaven? Well, he was on the Mount of Olives. And he had all of his apostles around him and a lot of followers. And he said, I am going to leave you with the Holy Spirit. I'll see you later. And then he went up to heaven. You tell me you, don't, you, wouldn't, you would not forget that. Floating into heaven. That was that's amazing. And he's going to come back down the same way at the same place. It says in Zechariah, he's going to stand on the Mount of Olives. And it's going to split in two. That'll be a bad day, by the way. So, Paul says, all right, if you don't believe this stuff, let me give you my story. So Paul's just going to give you a quick case study. And he's going to personalize the gospel. He's going to make it real. And listen to what he says in verse 9, or verse 8. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So what he's saying, first of all, is that he was the last one that you would think God would save. He was the last one to deserve to be saved. I would put it like this. I have no rational way to explain it, but he picked me. The last person in the world he'd ever expect to catch the eye of the Almighty God. And so he uses words like I was one who was untimely born. In the Greek, the idea is I was kind of like a miscarriage. I shouldn't have been, I shouldn't have been included in the blood of Christ as uh, and canopy. I shouldn't have had an interest in the blood of Christ. But Paul says, I was. And the reason why is he says, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm unworthy because he persecuted he slaughtered many in the early church. Book of Acts, chapter 9, verse 10. He would send out letters to bring in those who claim Christ and he would have them stoned. 
And then he went to Damascus to get more letters, and Jesus appeared to him. On the road to Damascus, said, Paul, what are you doing persecuting me? So he murdered the body of Christ. So you could say it like this, Paul's story begins as an enemy of the one who came to save him. The question is, can you relate to this? Some of you, some of you do not feel worthy of Christ. You'll say, I, you don't know me. Did you murder anybody lately? And God forgave Paul. Don't you think he could forgive you? I mean, seriously. Then Paul says, well, the reason why God saved me is verse 10, by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace to me was not in vain. So you could say he realizes that he was saved all by grace. He did nothing to garner God's affection at all. He wasn't saved because he was very religious. And Paul was very religious. He wasn't saved because he's born in the tribe of Benjamin. He wasn't saved because he had the same name as the first king of Israel, Saul. He wasn't saved because he was righteous as concerning the law. He did it perfectly. He was saved because God loved him. That's it. That's why we're saved. Not because we go to church. Not because we're still going to go to church while others hunt. See how godly I... That's not why we're saved. We're saved because Jesus loves me. I am... I am only here because of grace. You want to talk about somebody who's unworthy, it's me. But Chris, you wear your mom's ties. You don't know me. Talk about a lost person before I met Christ. It's me. Talk about the least of all Christians. I still fail every day. So either take it from me or Paul, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Our Lord, not even your worst of sins. And then I love how Paul ends this. Paul says, His grace was not in vain, but on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. That means of the other apostles. He, he did. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So in other words, Paul says, and not only was I saved, but God doesn't just save me to save me. He saves me to use me. He doesn't just save you and just say it's done. Wow, we got another one saved. He saves you to use you. He wants you. You have purpose. You have meaning. You get to carry the secret things of God. This message is yours. You have your own story. Paul says, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God. That means that I just wanted to work. I like how Jonathan Edwards illustrates this. He says it like this. He says, imagine you're blind and you're dying of thirst and you're in a desert and you're just groping your way around and you fall into this fountain of sweet water, clean and you start drinking and every time you drink you start seeing and then when you see you get out of the fountain and you look around and there's thousands of people blind and thirsty 
do you just drink from the water or do you go tell them you found it? And he ends this way. He says, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. This is it. This is it. This is what matters. That Jesus died for our sins, He was buried, and He rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. And as Paul ends, this is what we preach. I'd say like this, this is what we preach, and then He'd drop the microphone and leave. Some of you might be thinking, yeah, this can't be it. I, I mean, this message seems kind of exclusive. It seems limited. There has to be more. I, why, why do people want more? I am convinced people who want more don't understand this. Because if you understand this, you will be different. And you will be so full, you won't want any more. You know at the end of Thanksgiving when you have eaten about 17 slices of turkey? I don't need any more. I don't need any more. And I'm honest with you. I don't need any more than this. Do you? And if you do, here's my question. Does anything else compare to this? I was thinking about our culture a second. And I was wondering, why is the gospel so taken for granted? Why do people always want more? And as I was thinking about it, I wrote a blog on it yesterday. I think one of it is because people don't dread God. They really don't believe He's that holy. Because I don't think they understand holiness. It's kind of like telling a dog what it's like walking on two feet. We don't understand holiness. And the second reason is because we really like our sin. We love it. But the Bible says sin is leprosy. And it's killing us from the inside. I would end on this. Look at this. Go to 2 Thessalonians. And remember what I said about Scripture. If God says it, it is more solid than this wood. Listen to this passage. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And if this is true, how do we respond? Starting in verse 6. I'm going to begin with the word God because it will. It carries the thought. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 6. God considers it just, that means righteous, to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel, this, of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who will believe because our testimony to you was believed. Do you believe it? Because you will be different if you believe it. 